following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, spiritual pride would be one. Of course, there's really nothing funny, though, sadly, about spiritual pride. Um, two words that should never go together because they are just inherently contradictory in their meanings. Because if a person is truly spiritual, their life should be characterized by humility, not pride. And yet the truth and the reality is that spiritual pride can be a huge problem for any believer. Uh, Before I came to Christ, I was an extremely proud person. After I came to Christ, I was still a proud person. But now I had the advantage of having a spiritual excuse for my pride. So I could take pride in how much I knew about the Bible and how smart I was and what a good person I was. Well, of course, that's just antithetical to what true spirituality is. And when we look uh, at the book of Romans, uh, this was a problem with the church at Rome. And the context there, the church in Rome was made up of two very distinct groups, Gentile believers as well as Jewish converts. And apparently, from little clues we get through the book of Romans, uh, the church of Rome was having issues between these two groups. And it's kind of actually a sub-theme in the book that we'll get more into, we'll see more of as you go to the second, the, the last part of the book where Paul addresses their unity... Uh, but at the root of their disunity, at the root of their differences, was this spiritual pride. The Jews were proud because they were the people of God and felt that they were superior to Gentiles who were low-life scum. Uh, as we'll see in this chapter, the Gentiles felt this incredible spiritual pride that uh, God was pretty much done with Israel and had now shifted his program to the Gentile church. And they felt spiritually superior to their uh, Jewish counterparts. Um, and of course the gospel it rightly understood eliminates any space or room in our life for pride uh, and if we if we have pride in our life especially spiritual pride it's a good indicator or a sign that we don't really understand what the gospel is all about we haven't really let the gospel soak into our life and transform the way we see ourselves and see others now the context of this passage is definitely the the issue over Jews and Jewish converts. And for us in our day and age, maybe things have changed a bit. Um, we, we, we don't have, you know, the Gentile section and over here the, the Jewish convert section. Uh, there may be some Messianic Jews here this morning, but they would be a very small minority. Uh, so we may not feel the kind of spiritual pride that the Gentile Christians in Rome felt, felt towards their Jewish counterparts. However... The condition is still very much a part of and an issue for, for most of us. I know it is for me. Where I feel that I am superior to, superior to other Christians. Right? Not that they're bad, it's just that I'm that much better. Right? Because obviously I understand the Bible better than they do. You know, if they were you know, in line with me doctrinally, you know, then they could come up to my level where I live and breathe in the higher realms. Right? Uh, if they don't do ministry the way I do ministry and don't have the same priorities I do, clearly they're inferior to my more superior uh, 
practice of faith. So it's very easy for us to look at other denominations, groups, other people who do ministry differently, who have a different focus, uh, who have different traditions, and feel that, well, you know what they do, it's okay for them because they're losers. Uh, Someday they'll grow into the the spiritual maturity that I possess, and they'll be more like me. Because that's obviously the goal of all spirituality, is for you all to become like me. Of course, that's ridiculous, right? And that's spiritual pride. And uh, most of us would never say that, but if we examine our lives, I know for me, oftentimes those attitudes are there and are very real, very subtle. You know, the way I think of myself in relationship to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's very easy to have the same sense of spiritual pride about how special we are over and above others. So what Paul writes here is very relevant and very practical for us today. And we will see and look through it as it relates to the Jewish context that uh, was true in the church in Rome. But then we'll, uh, as we go, see how it also applies in our own context in in day and age. So let's read uh, chapter 11, verses 13 through 24. Uh, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles... Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy... So are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were, cu- for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild tree and grafted contrary to nature to a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Um, So as we look at this uh, spiritual pride and how we can overcome it in our life, uh, Paul starts off by giving two analogies, two pictures that um, maybe are a little bit hard for us to grasp. The first one about a lump of dough, a lump of bread dough. The other about an olive tree. And I have, we can go to the next slide. Uh, I have a really bad picture of an olive tree here. Uh, Sorry. Sorry. but what I, the reason I put this bad picture up of an olive tree is it's, this was actually taken in the traditional 
site of the Garden of Gethsemane in, in Jerusalem. And uh, olive trees can grow to be quite old. And they, of course, they claim that this goes back to before Jesus and that Jesus, you know, prayed under this very olive tree. <laughs> may or may not be true. But the point is, olive trees can grow to be massive. And the, the is, Israelis all over that area, they grow olive trees. And they're very proud of the fact that essentially an olive tree never dies. Even if the whole thing looks dead and falls over, a new shoot will sprout up from an olive tree. And as we think about Paul's picture of an olive tree, you need to think of one like this, right? Maybe in your mind you picture of a very slender, streamlined, you know, maybe like a uh, mango tree kind of looking thing. But really, I think what Paul has in mind when he uses this image of an olive tree is something more like this, a massive, old, gnarled trunk of a tree with branches sprouting out. We'll see why I think that as we go through this. Um, and he uses these images, and uh, the first point he makes is really that one of the problems we have spiritual pride is that we've turned the gospel upside down. And we're seeing upside down or backwards what the gospel is really all about. And he, he talks about it in these terms. He's, he says, first of all, he says, I'm, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Now in chapters 11, um, 9, 10, and 11, he's been talking about the problem of Israel's rejection of the gospel. And largely he's, he's addressing uh, Jews. He's addressing the Israelites who, uh, this remnant, uh, how, how did God... Uh, fail? Did he fail in his promise to bless Israel? And he's wrestling through those theological questions. But now uh, he turns his aim at the Gentiles. He says, now this is for you Gentiles. Okay, in the midst of all this discussion, let me make something, make a point uh, to you who are Gentiles. Um, and his point is, that he says some things he said, inasmuch as I'm a, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. The word literally, is, he says, I glorify my ministry. And Paul doesn't mean, in a, in a section on spiritual pride, he's not saying, look at how wonderful my ministry is. Okay, that's not actually what he's saying. Uh, he, the, the word here probably has the idea of highlighting his ministry. He's trying to make a big deal out of his ministry, not because his ministry is better or more important. But he wants... Jews to see that God is opening up the way for Gentiles to share in the blessings of Israel. That, uh, that Paul has been sent uh, to Gentiles, not to Jews, in order to make them jealous. In order to incite them to go, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, that's supposed to be our blessing. Right? That's what he means by that. Um, it's kind of like, you know, remember back in middle school, uh, if you're like me in middle school, you're kind of a dorky, lanky, awkward-looking child. I haven't changed that much, except I'm just older. And, uh, and you know, there's this, the most beautiful girl in all of seventh grade all of a sudden takes an interest in you and starts flirting with you, you know. And, uh, and you start getting these grand hopes that this girl likes you. This is, like, impossible, right? Most people are, and she is... She's paying attention to you, and she's flirting with you, and she's making it all very public. And you're like, oh, could this be true? Oh, my goodness. And you start getting your hopes up, and she starts stringing you along, and you're, you know, you're walking on the clouds. All to find out that this is a girl trick, right? That she's doing this all to make the guy she really likes jealous. And you're just a pawn on her chessboard. Oh, crushed, right? She's not interested in you. Why wouldn't she be, right? 
She's just using you to make that guy jealous. Well, that's Paul. That's, that's what Paul's doing here. He says, I'm just, uh, you know, God uh, uh, wants to make Israel jealous. And uh, we'll develop that more next week, uh, what that looks like. But uh, God sends his blessing to the Gentiles. And Paul is an apostle of the Gentiles. He says, so that somehow I can make them jealous and draw them back to the gospel, draw them back to Christ. Uh, and then he goes on and he starts with his analogy. He says, if the dough offered as fruits, first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And uh, the picture goes back to the offering of first fruits where they would take uh, and they would make up a batch of, of bread dough from their first harvest of grain. And they would take a portion of the bread dough and they would take it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice as a, an offering of first fruits. And Paul says, and, and it actually says this in Deuteronomy, that that, um, that offering makes the whole lump holy. Okay? Because it's set apart and made sacred, made uniquely God's possession on the altar, therefore the whole lump now becomes set apart, sacred and special to God. Right? Uh, and then he uses the same analogy of a root. He says, a tree, an olive tree, uh, if its root is holy, uh, the rest of the tree also uh, receives the holiness that's transmitted from the root. Now, what is he talking about in all this? What, what, is, what is he implying in this? Well, what he is saying here is that all Israel was made holy through the promise made to Abraham. Right? So God made a special covenant, a special promise to Abraham that, that set Abraham aside as, a, as holy, as someone set apart uniquely as God's special possession. And that all Israel, all the descendants of Abraham who have been children of the promise, now are set apart as a holy people. Uh, and not holy in the sense that they're without sin, that they're spotless, that they're somehow sanctified in that sense, but holy in the sense of set apart as God's special people. That's how the, he's using the word here. Um, so all Israel, he's just been arguing this uh, through the this last couple chapters, that Israel is still God's special people. They are still God's elect, that God is still working in their lives, and they will always be set apart as a nation, as a people, as God's special possession. And that's because... Uh, of this principle of the root, uh, what's true in the root gets spread or transferred to the whole tree. So the root he's talking about here is Abraham. The, the lump that's made holy in the dough is Abraham. And the promises of God to Abraham, specifically to bless Abraham and to bless his offspring, to make him a great nation, to make him a people who would be his possession, and to bless the nations. Right, so that's kind of the backdrop of this. And, um, and so uh, Paul goes on in his argument to say that all people who fall under God's redemptive blessing do so through the root or the tree of, of Abraham and Abraham's offspring. Right. Now, if you're a Gentile living in Rome uh, and you're convinced that uh, God started this new thing called the Gentile church. The guy got fed up with Israel, and he doesn't like Israel anymore, and he has whacked down the olive tree called Israel, and he's decided, I'm not going to do olives anymore, I'm going to do uh, almonds. 
And he planted a new tree called an almond tree. And the almond tree is what sprouted up out of the Gospels. And now it's a Gentile church, uh, separate and distinct from what God had done in the Old Testament. right? And that we can therefore look down on those Jewish scoundrels who rejected the Gospel. Because we're obviously better. We are now the new people of God whom God has chosen. Well, Paul is addressing people with that kind of thought. He's saying, no, God did not plant a new tree. He did not give up on olives. He did not switch to almonds or any other kind of tree. He is still working through the tree of Abraham, the chosen people of God that began with Abraham and through his offspring. And he expands the image uh, as he explains. Um, He says... If some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, then do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Right? He says you are grafted into this tree, which is Israel. Okay? It's, he says you are grafted in to this tree, and the tree that we're grafted into is a very Jewish tree. Right? Now, it's important for us to understand this, and a lot of Christians uh, you know, don't understand, maybe have never read Romans 11. It's not most people's favorite passage, you know. <laughs> Love Romans 11. Uh, and we, we lose perspective of our relationship with God's program, God's redeeming plan through history as it relates to Israel. And Paul makes it very clear through this image that there's one tree and it's a Jewish tree. And we as Gentiles have not, are not a new tree, not a different tree. We are grafted in to a tree that is Israel. That has as its roots, as its beginning, Abraham and the promises and blessings to him. God does not have two special chosen people. He has one. We are either his people or we're not. And he says we are all together one people along with Israel in God's redeeming and saving plan. Uh, and it's true that Paul, Paul says that in, indeed uh, some branches have been broken off. Uh, and he's been talking about Israel's rejection and how they have stumbled. How they stumbled over the, the chief cornerstone. They stumbled over Christ. And Israel has, uh, has fallen. And he goes on, and we'll talk next week, uh, that their fall is not permanent, but they've stumbled over Jesus. Uh, and And it's true that many Jews in unbelief have rejected him. And and so God has, for all except for, as we said last week, a remnant, God has cut them off from the tree. He's cut off those branches. And it's made room, Paul argues, for us as Gentiles to be grafted in. And he says specifically that we now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Literally, it's the fat root. Okay, It's a fat tree. It's a fat root. We are grafted in to a tree that is fat. Well, what is it fat with? Okay, what makes this tree, so this root, so fat and so abundant? Well, uh, what, what, what Paul is talking here about is the blessings and promise of God to Abraham. Right? What, what did God promise Abraham? He said he would make him a great nation, that he would bless him, that through him the nations of the world would be blessed. In other words, all of God's redemptive promises to Abraham... Uh, carry through to us. 
Uh, and that makes sense because you're taking something worthless and you're making it fruitful and productive. Okay. Now Paul is sharing this, uh, this, this analogy knowing how ridiculous what he's saying is. What he's picturing is a guy who has a perfectly good olive tree that's very fruitful and abundant. And he goes in and whacks off all the good branches and grafts in wild olive branches. Now, if you're reading this, you would go, well, that's the stupidest thing ever, right? Uh, it's taking something perfectly good and making it worthless. Well, that's exactly what God did to us. And I think Paul, a lot of people think that when Paul wrote this, it was because he didn't understand uh, the horticulture of his day. I think that's absurd. Uh, Paul was not an idiot, right? Uh, he traveled, he walked by these fields, you know, he knew if you spend any time in the Mediterranean, olive trees are everywhere, you know, and I was there for three days and I learned all kinds of stuff about olive trees. Paul lived there, he knew about olive trees. Right? He's making a point here. He is saying, look, think about this, you proud and arrogant Gentiles, you're worthless wild olive branches. It made no sense for God to graft you into his tree, right? God didn't do this because it was profitable for him. He didn't do it because he was getting a good deal out of this, right? From a point of farming, growing olive trees, this is a bad move, right? God didn't do it for those reasons. He did it out of his grace, right? He's saying, look, Gentiles, the truth is, God made these promises to Abraham uh, to, to plant a tree that was very Jewish. You don't belong here in the natural realm. Okay, it is God's grace that has brought you into his promise. It is his grace. Right? We don't fit, technically. Now that, ought to, that ought to bring us down a few notches, right? That ought to bring us down a few notches. That we are not the pinnacle of God's great program. We got in by grace. We don't belong in this tree. We don't bring to it anything incredible or spectacular. God did not look down at us and say, well, look how talented and wonderful you are. I think I need you because you'll contribute greatly to my kingdom. That's not what God says. He says you are a worthless wild olive that, uh, that would be crazy for me to graft in. But... My love and goodness, I have grafted you into my program, into my purpose, into my redeeming plan through history. Now, of course, uh, I don't want to say that God does not have a purpose for us to be fruitful, and by God's miraculous grace, he makes us abundantly fruitful. Right? But there is something in this analogy that points at, uh, you know, this, we don't belong. We are in by grace. And so we should not be arrogant. So Paul says, look, if some branches were broken off and you, as a wild olive, were grafted in among others and now share in the blessing of this fat root, then don't be arrogant toward the branches. See, if we understand the gospel clearly, the gospel tells us that it is all about grace and there is nothing about me that makes me special in myself, right? No, I don't bring anything in my intelligence, in my charm, in my, my wit, in my spirituality, in my goodness that makes me better than anybody else. I am made what I am by grace because God in his kindness and goodness has grafted me into his program. And I don't belong here, really. 
It is by His grace. And then he goes on and he says, he says uh, that this tree has to be supported by its root. Right? He says, if you remember, uh, if you are, in other words, if you are proud, okay, if you're proud and arrogant, remember this. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And this is where I think we've turned the gospel upside down. We've turned this olive tree upside down. And we have this notion that this new branch called the Gentile Church of the New Testament age has now become the foundation, the root of the tree, and that this whole tree is supported by us. Right? We are God's new saving program and purpose, and now God is building His kingdom on us. Right? We're the branches, and the whole tree is supported and sustained by the New Testament church. Um, and this is kind of how it looks. Well, well, first, before I say that, let me say this, that uh, Paul says an emphatic no to that. He says, no. Remember, it is you that is supported by the root. All right, so what does that look like? Well, um, I think a lot of Christians have the notion or the idea that the gospel is, is exclusively a New Testament concept, Right? That there was the Old Testament, and then God saw that that didn't work, so he came up with this plan called the Gospel, and he wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and poof, the church was born, and now God's, God's plan for the ages rests on this new thing called the New Testament church, and his brilliant new idea called the Gospel. Right? And a lot of people kind of unconsciously have this picture of this, and that someday, you know, Jews might be able to build on, you know, be, 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 able to come into this new program of God. Right? But Paul says, no. Okay, you're, you're misunderstanding who you are as the church. Okay, he says, the church, the New Testament age, the Gentile church, is supported by this root called Israel, called the Old Testament. Um, and, and, and we need to think about this. Uh, here's a question. Okay, if you're Paul, if you're Jesus, if you're one of the early apostles, and you go out to preach the gospel, right? Jesus says, and Paul says, that they, they both preach the gospel according to the scriptures. They explain the gospel according to the scriptures. What scriptures did they use? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. Okay, there you go. Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Psalms, right? When they say they preach the gospel from the scriptures, they mean they preach the gospel from the Old Testament. Where was the gospel first conceived and explained and talked about? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or in Genesis? Right? It is an Old Testament gospel. Okay? We, uh, we live and we base our faith not on a New Testament convention, but on something that God talked about throughout the whole Old Testament. And you see, in the Old Testament, there are three basic things. There are pictures, so all of their Old Testament worship, the sacrifices, the temple, all of the laws, are pictures that point and explain Jesus and the gospel. Right? Then there are the promises, the promises to Abraham, his covenants with them. His promise to David, his covenant with him, Right? Those promises are all promises that ultimately are fulfilled and reach their pinnacle in 
Jesus and the gospel. And then thirdly, there are prophecies, both speaking what will come, but also his prophetic word throughout Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, the prophets. Likewise, as we saw with the Christmas story, they are fulfilled, completed. They get their deepest, fullest meaning in Jesus and in the gospel. So when we talk about our faith, our faith and the gospel that we hold to is very much an Old Testament gospel. Now, of course, the gospels and the New Testament explains how Jesus fulfilled uh, perfectly everything that the Old Testament pointed to. You see, the, the Old Testament, the root of the tree is what sustains what we possess in the church age. It is a continuation of God's redeeming program and plan through history. So for the Romans, uh, Christians in in Rome, Paul is saying, you know, it's ridiculous for you to think that what you have can exist separate from your Jewish counterparts. You owe them an incredible debt of gratitude because what you have has been handed down from them. It's a gospel tree that started long ago, and we are simply grafted into it. So do not be proud. Do not be proud. Um, we are supported by the Old Testament gospel, right? the gospel which is God's plan from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, practical application for us in all of our pride and arrogance, um, you know, it, it, is, it is an arrogance, it is a pride to say that I am a New Testament Christian and so I have no use for the Old Testament. Right? And I, I can be super guilty of this. I love the Gospels. I love the writings of Paul. I resonate with them. Leviticus? Eh, not so much. You know? Deuteronomy? Not my favorite thing to read, right? Uh, but it, it is an arrogance to say uh, the Old Testament is irrelevant and meaningless to me, right? That its message is outdated and doesn't apply to me. What that's saying is that we don't really understand the message of the Old Testament. We don't really know how to read the Old Testament and see in it that all of its its pictures, all of its promises, and all of its prophecies point to Christ and help us have a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Um, I was with Tim Miller teaching Burmese pastors a year or so ago, teaching about preaching. And as kind of an off-the-cuff example, I talked about how and when you preach from the Old Testament, you, you, need to, you ultimately need to preach Christ. And so I'd given some examples of how all the Old Testament ultimately points to Jesus. And uh, I was kind of shocked at some of the feedback. And a bunch of these guys, of all the other things I said, wonderful preaching advice, the thing they liked the most was they had never heard this before. And they were like, wow, I didn't know that Jesus was in the Old Testament. Right? And they'd never been taught that. They'd never been... Uh, shown how uh, you know our faith is rooted in the tree of Israel, in the tree of the Old Testament, in the tree of Abraham. Right? So we've got to be very careful that we uh, we don't develop that same attitude because it will foster a certain kind of spiritual pride. But that we are New Testament Christians, and that somehow what we possess is apart from or separate or better than what God laid out in the Old Testament. Right. We should be humbled by the fact that what we are brought into is God's plan for the eternal ages, that he has grafted into uh, his special people Israel 
us, the nations, right? And he's done it rooted on all that's taught in the Old, Old Testament. Well, Paul goes on. Uh, convinced, not, not, Paul's not yet convinced that they're getting it, right? Uh, Paul knows how arrogant these Roman Gentiles are, so he, he gives another shot at them. He says, well, then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Ha! That makes me pretty special, right? Uh, you know, you can talk all you want, but Paul, you've just been the one telling me that God has cut off these unbelieving Jews and that as a result, he's made room for us. And so now we are the special program of God. Clearly, God has changed his shift. He's cut off Israel. And, and uh, even what you've taught, Paul, confirms that. Um, in other words, you know, you got rid of them to make room for me because I'm special, right? Uh, and this kind of thinking is a very me-centered, man-centered gospel which sees the focus and center of the gospel as, as me. That I'm the star of the show and that God has done all this stuff to everybody else because he, because I really am special and God wanted to save me because I am special. And you are special. I want you all to know you are special. <gasps> but not that special. Okay? Not that special. Paul says that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. Uh, some versions say, but, but have awe. Literally, he says, but fear. Be afraid. Okay? For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Right? He says, you're special. You're not exempt. Okay, the same hatchet that could whack off those branches can whack you off as well. You ought to be afraid of that axe and the one who wields it, who's God. Right? Uh, and he, he highlights that the issue here is one of faith. He says, look, the reason Israel was cut off was because of their unbelief. The reason you were grafted in was simply because of faith. So it brings it right back to the heart of what the gospel is. Israel did not stay where they should have been because they thought they could stay there by their own good works and keeping the law, by their own goodness, by their own you know, knowing more, by their own spirituality that was man-made. And Paul says, see, they didn't get it. They didn't understand that their righteousness was not adequate. And that only God could fix it. That it's only through the work of what God did that they could stay connected to the tree. He says, you as Gentiles have understood that. You have seen that you are worthless wild olives who don't deserve anything but to be burned. But apart from anything you have done, by faith you have accepted what God has done for you. And by that faith you stand. So Paul says simply this. He says, uh, there's only one way in to this tree. And it's not based on how good you are or what you can do for God. And not about your great contributions you'll make to his kingdom or your talents. It's not even based on whether or not you sign up to teach Sunday school. Believe it or not, right? It is based on faith, right? Faith. 
And the good news is there's only one way out. And this is really good news. He says there's only one way to get whacked off the tree. There's only one way to get cut off. Okay, and it's not because of huge moral failure. It's not because of gross sin in your life. It's not because you're, uh, you're out of control and you cannot bring a rain on your lust and your greed and your anger and your jealousy and even your pride. Okay, it's not that you can't get a control of, of the addictions in your life. Those things will not cause you to be cut off from the tree. Praise God for that. Amen? Okay, your sin is not a problem. Jesus paid for it all. Right? But what will get you cut off? Unbelief. Right? Unbelief. If you stop believing, he says, you're just as prone to get cut off as the Jews who did not believe. Right? So do not be proud. Be afraid. Right? And if you want to deal with pride in your life, it should start here. You should have a healthy fear of how perilous your life is before God. Um, you are here by grace, by the gift of God that's free, that you did not deserve, and you receive it only by faith. Because you believe it's true and you believe God has given it to you, and by faith you receive it. Right? That's, that's it. That's what keeps us in the tree. And Paul says, look, if we stop believing, if our faith is proved inadequate, uh, you won't be part of the tree either. Now, you may think, well, yeah, but what about this whole eternal security thing? Doesn't Paul teach like that, you know, once you're in, you're always in? Um, well, however true that may be, what Paul is saying is this. Uh, those who live in fear, those who live with a healthy sense of this fear that I am only in right relationship with God through faith and who are terrified of how easily that could slip away, how easily I could mess this up if I start relying on my own works and my own goodness and my own smartness, my own brains, my own great theology. I don't trust in faith. Uh, how easily they can lose that salvation. Right. For those people, they will find true assurance of salvation in that growing faith. Right. As I know, faith is the one thing that keeps me connected to Christ. The more we fear that, uh, the more we will cling to that hope of faith. But what Paul's talking about are those who are complacent about the whole thing. You know, who prayed some prayer in third grade, some prayer of salvation, went to church their whole life, served God, did good, big things for Him, um, but are really basing their spirituality on their own goodness, their own you know, ability to, to perform the right things, to give the right answers. Right? And faith is far in the background. Paul says these people need a healthy dose of fear. Right? And he goes on and he puts it even more strongly in verse 22 when he says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. Uh, note the severity and kindness of God. We need to keep a balanced view of God. Last thing that we'll will counter, that will keep in check our pride, is to really have a right understanding of God. And in our 
human nature, we have a tendency to lean one way or towards the other towards God's character. We emphasize overly God's love and grace, right, to the neglect of his justice. Or we, we're all about his holiness and righteous wrath and the neglect of his love. Um, and it's true that God is love. But if that is all he is, then he's really not love at all. And God is holy and just, but if that is all he is, then he is really not just at all. Why? Because true justice and right judgment can only come from one who loves perfectly. Okay, you got that? True ju- judgment, justice, can only come from the heart of one who loves perfectly. And likewise, true love can only come from one who holds to a perfect uh, and just standard. Okay, true love can only come from one who, who judges fairly. Right? Uh, if you're a parent and you love your kids, but you do not love them with justice, your, your children will tell you about it. Right? And they will say, but that's not fair. Right? And there's, a, there's an implication in that that, fair, that love must be fair. Right? Uh, God must be both just and loving. And if we emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, then there will be a huge imbalance in our, in our spirituality and our understanding of God. Um, we, will, we will walk too much in his kindness with no fear, or we will walk in total fear with no sense of his kindness, no sense of grace. Right? And, and, and where he calls us, what the gospel calls us to is to a place where both of those things meet at the cross. Right? And we understand that I'm a believer, I am his child, as this wild, worthless olive branch, simply because God was kind to me. In his grace and love, he showed incredible kindness. And not just to bring us to salvation, but every day of our life, God is being incredibly kind to you. Incredibly kind. His heart towards you is gracious. His kindness is above what we can even imagine. Right? It is by his kindness. It is not by anything we do. It is by his grace. And he says, you, 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 you're fine as long as you continue in that kindness. In other words, as long as I keep relying on his kindness as my saving hope and not my goodness, not my good works, not my effort, not my hard work, not what a good person I am, then you will walk forward in humility and true faith. Or if you live uh, totally under God's fear, condemned, feeling guilty all the time, torn up by all your mistakes and failures, then you're missing out on God's kindness. Right? And you're denying the power of the cross to overcome your sin. What's interesting is that in both these cases where we fail to keep that balance, it's because the focus turns off of what God has done and turns back to what I do. Right? In both cases, it's focused on my effort, not his goodness, not what he's done for us. Um, it ought to make us humble. Uh, and if we truly understand what the gospel is, it is a very humbling thing. And, of course, Paul's application here is towards the Jews, towards Israel. 
But just as we close, uh, you know, examine your heart. Uh, how do you treat uh, people who are Christians, who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, who see things differently than you, uh, who may not agree with you theologically, who may do ministry in a very, very different way than you would, whose priorities are very different than yours? Honestly, uh, do you look at them and go, you know, they're obviously not as spiritual as I am, right? Right? Well, what is it that makes you more spiritual? Is it because you're so much smarter? Because your theology is so much better? Because you're so much better person? Because your life is so much more important to God? See, that's not the gospel. Paul says, no. Uh, you look at other people and you say, you know, they're, they're kind of a mess. They're kind of like a wild olive branch. Oh, you know what? So am I. What a coincidence. We're both kind of worthless. We're both in desperate need of the kindness of God. And it's only by faith in his goodness that I am anything, that they are anything. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.